0: You're listening to The Solution, a podcast by Growers Mineral. I'm your host, Russell Bobel. In this ongoing series, we will be taking a look at the book, More Food from Soil Science, a book written in 1965 by one of Growers co-founders, Dr. V.A. Tejens. Introduction This book is written for general information, particularly for the person who is interested in growing crops more profitably on already cultivated soils. It has wide application and can be helpful in most areas where food crops can be grown. The ideas expressed in these chapters are based on sound, fundamental information. They can be demonstrated under field conditions. They are controversial when compared with much of the knowledge depended on today to grow our world food supply, but they are not controversial to the research man who knows all the literature pertaining to the subjects discussed. Growing more food per acre at a lower unit cost, especially in the face of ever-increasing labor costs, should be the goal of every person concerned with the welfare of the farmer. Accumulating food surpluses on the American continent have lulled us into a complacency which has dulled our thinking and may return the agricultural industry to the days of Plato. If we have too much, why worry about the future? Or Horace Greeley, the illusion that times that were are better than times that are, has probably pervaded all the ages. We can go back 6,000 years to the Pris Papyrus and read, Alas, times are not what they used to be, but there are many urgent things to do. We seem to think in circles. Unknowingly, we are standing still. We have been spending our time thinking about whose back we should pat at the next convention, rather than scrutinizing the context of the deeds for which we want to pat someone on the back. Our research thinking has been dull and listless. Our research on food production has been too spasmodic, probably because our research contributions have had to be gleaned with a fine-tooth comb. During the past 75 years of soils and crops research, we have gradually gleaned some information that has helped to improve our understanding of the physiology of crop production and the chemical reactions taking place in cultivated soil, but this has not resulted in worthwhile yield increases. During the same period, We have formulated many hypotheses and theories and have speculated on how we will feed the multitudes in the future. (laughs) For some reason, we have barely dented the surface. During my lifetime, we gradually increased our average yield of corn 20 bushels per acre. So we throw out our chests, pat someone on the back, and congratulate him for having contributed to that increase. But when we look further... We find that this accomplishment was brought about only because Providence smiled and provided the growing conditions that made it possible. When we look for the reasons for the increase of 20 bushels, we find various groups with different interests taking the credit. The group with the biggest political lobby, the commercial fertilizer industry, likes to take most of the credit when actually they have contributed the least and have probably done the best job of confusing our thinking. Because of the influence of the lobby, many of our young scientists have been dazzled into thinking that propaganda is truth, to the extent that they have allowed this propaganda to guide their thinking. When a person thinks one way for long enough, he begins to adapt his thinking into a lifetime philosophy, which he is more and more reluctant to change, even if it is faulty. The fertilizer industry has been guided by agronomists who got their knowledge from the fertilizer industry. This is because our experiment stations have not had sufficient funds to carry out their programs. When the industry forced its demands for information, the industry was urged to help support the work. It, in good faith, made grants for research fellowships, which have helped in many college graduates to do enough work to earn higher degrees. But when you view this practice in terms of its results, you can't help but think of one of our World War songs, Don't Bite the Hand That is Feeding You. I have had considerable experience with such grants. I received a grant from a large chemical company to study the utilization of nitrogen in plants. I became convinced that much of our so-called factual knowledge gained from research stems from a faulty premise. Since my results did not sell more fertilizer, the fellowship was quickly discontinued. In later years, I accepted a fellowship from a company selling potash. I picked a student well trained in chemistry to work under the conditions of the fellowship. He was very conscientious and did an excellent job on the role of the potassium ion in the growth of plants. He also published four worthwhile papers on the subject, but again, Because his work did not help to sell more potash, my fellowship was transferred to another college. My graduate student had to finish his work without financial assistance. He was the best informed student I have ever known. He would have made many contributions to our knowledge of the use of plant food materials. But his work was not what the sales manager wanted from the research. The student was not popular with industrial people because he was too sincere and said what he thought. Most people who refused to hire him gave the excuse that he was a Jew. I finally helped place him in the United States Department of Agriculture, where he is doing a fine research job. If the fertilizer industry has no right to claim credit for the increased yield in corn, we must look further. What I say is based only on my experience and my reading of published reports. Hybrid varieties probably contributed 10 bushels, more or less, to corn yields, partly because they reduced disease and produced better stands with more uniform ear and stalk growth. Planting more seed to the acre added several bushels. Weed control with weed killers added 3 to 5 bushels. Agricultural practices could also have added a few, so we can account for the 20 bushels without giving commercial fertilizer any credit. As a matter of fact, if the real reason were known, we would probably find that we are able to grow an average yield of around 68 bushels of corn without any fertilizer, because records of field plots show that the use of limestone probably deserves more credit than fertilizer. That fertilizer does not deserve the credit is no criticism of commercial fertilizer, no, it's a criticism of the men who recommend its use. Fundamental information has been lacking to evaluate the need of adding commercial fertilizer. Fertilizer, from the inception of its use for crop production, was recommended with no reference to the lime condition of the soil. As a result, many tons of fertilizer have been wasted. I wanted to emphasize this statement because there is a tendency for writers of future food predictions to take refuge in the idea that we have unlimited fertilizer resources, which will provide for thousands of years hence. Actually, from my own experience, I would feel very much concerned if I thought that our future food supply depended only on our unlimited supplies of fertilizer. If the ideas we have had for increasing yields in the past 75 years had been valid, we would be growing 300 bushels per acre of corn today but there is no merit to those ideas. I can remember when the soil acidity test was proposed at one of our world soil conferences as the answer to a maiden's prayer. It was the crystallization into one simple test of many previous ideas, but it dealt with acids and alkalis rather than with limestone and fertilizer residues. When it was used on soil, which had not been contaminated by additional chemicals, it gave us a valuable research tool. But the use of chemicals for crop production introduced a factor which many failed to take into consideration. We were testing more than the calcium ion, and we began to fall short in our limestone applications. We must keep in mind that even though natural phenomena may have a simple explanation, it may take the combination of many brains to deduce a workable hypothesis. The pH test was reliable, but our interpretation led us astray. A soil acidity test gave us a balance sheet on all plus and minus charges in the soil. But, since the plus charges did not coincide with the calcium ions, and it was the number of calcium ions we were interested in, because of that the results of the test did not always result in better crop yields. The pH was not as useful as everyone expected. Unfortunately, most of our limestone needs are still being measured with this acidity test, and the addition of anhydrous ammonia to the soil has overshadowed the effect of limestone and has resulted in many alkaline readings which were not due to limestone. Oxidation reduction potential, a rather euphonious phrase, was all the rage at another soil congress. Actually, this idea had more potential value for helping raise crop yields if properly interpreted. Too few realized it merely meant good or poor drainage. Good oxidation meant better root growth and, therefore, better yields. But it, too, was a disappointment, because it was not considered in relation to the other factors affecting plant growth. Then along came profiles, soil profiles, which were another tool to help increase yields. Much fundamental information was needed to interpret what we saw. This necessitated a thorough knowledge of soil chemistry, which few agronomists had, so the presence of a bad plow soil, or the physical condition of the soil in the different horizons of the profile, could not be translated into crop yields. And yet, in the hands of a soil chemist, a study of the profile made it possible to predict future yields. Dr. Jacob Joffe, formerly with the New Jersey Experiment Station— became very proficient at estimating future yields through the study of soil profiles. I had the pleasure of working with him for many years. In one project, we studied soil profiles on more than 100 farms for three years and estimated possible yields of tomatoes on the appearance, odor, and compaction of the soil. I was amazed to find that he had estimated the yield correctly 84% of the time. I doubt whether we can say that these big yields we hear about are the result of plant treatment. It is true that many of them have received heavy amounts of plant food, but who can say that we might not have had larger yields if considerably less plant food and more limestone had been applied? For advertising fodder, fertilizer companies have used high yields as evidence of the value of fertilizer. The need for many pounds of plant food to produce a big yield of corn has been overemphasized. In 1962, one of the farm journals showed five farmers who grew over 200 bushels of corn while using comparatively small quantities of fertilizer. I imagined this disturbed some fertilizer salesmen because the figures did not support the propaganda distributed by sales agencies. I have grown large yields of corn when smaller amounts of plant food were applied to the soil. The practice did not wear out the soil as many people expected. My fertilizer level, according to tests made by experiment station personnel, increased over a 10-year period of continuous corn. We don't know how much plant nutrient we must add to produce a big yield. There are so many variables to consider that we can't do much more than initiate plots, apply different amounts of fertilizer, and see what amount gives us the highest yield. We can't take much for granted. Every piece of land is different when it comes to determining the nutritional needs of a given crop. My methods are not orthodox. They are not based on what I was taught in applied courses in college. They are the result of reasoning about my own experience reading and using test plots in the field. My solutions to many problems when I was able to materially increase yields resulted from my own interpretations based on whatever fundamental knowledge I was able to gain from papers in the leading scientific journals of various countries. Many fundamental research workers should be credited with having contributed to my thinking. Since I am not writing a reference book, let it be understood that anyone whose thinking seems to agree with mine probably helped me formulate my ideas and deserves credit. I probably have very few original ideas. I have been accused by people with limited background knowledge of putting out crackpot ideas on soil fertility. Many ideas in this book are at variance with those I was taught in college, and since many present day workers were taught those same ideas, they naturally are very critical of my interpretations. But, since these ideas have enabled me to solve many problems, and greatly increase yields on farms over a wide area of the United States, (laughs) I am glad to assume the responsibility of being unorthodox in my ideas. I am convinced that I have put together some worthwhile bits of the puzzle of fertility problems, because I did achieve a 100 to 200% increase in yield the first year. Examples of how I have solved these problems make up the majority of this book. I have been successful in raising corn yields from 50 to 145 bushels on farms where some experiment station people have failed by their own methods to do more than increase yields by 10 bushels. I feel that I have ample proof in my data and observations, and I can demonstrate the facts with field plots. I'm not criticizing all extension teachers. People from some experiment stations are more successful in solving problems than those from others. It depends on how well they have been won over to the philosophy of the fertilizer industry. We have too few people who want to do their own thinking. We may assume two points of view. One is the fertilizer salesman's point of view. Increase your yields and field fertility by using more fertilizer. Personally, I wish this were true. I sell fertilizer, and I would like to increase my sales by recommending more fertilizer per acre. However, this philosophy ignores the soil and its previous treatment. It is driving people from farms, because the farmer is not making any profit. He gets no response, and his costs per acre exceed his cash returns. When a farmer can't pay his bills, it means he isn't growing enough per acre to pay for the fertilizer. So why should he buy fertilizer? This is one method by which fertilizer companies may buy farms. It is the easy way to sell fertilizer, but it's not conducive to building up a sound future business. I am more sympathetic with the second point of view, which I'm glad to say a few agronomists agree. Test the soil and find out what it needs, then try to initiate check plots to see whether the fertilizer pays off. This point of view increases costs of sales, but it means that the farmer gets enough returns to pay his bills. This book is written for the layman, particularly the farmer who has the responsibility of feeding an ever-increasing population. Along with this obligation, he has the right to maintain as high a standard of living as any other small businessman. To achieve this standard of living, he must grow something to sell. And to do this successfully, he must grow more than average yields. As a matter of fact, he must grow as big a yield as his climate permits. The efficiency with which crops are produced will vary among individuals and will result in variations in farmers' standards of living. I recently read a statement made by the head of an agronomy department at one of our universities to the effect that any sizable boost in world crop production must be accompanied by a great expansion in the fertilizer industry. I doubt whether we have any proof of this. Had he said this about the ground limestone industry, I am sure it would have been proven. I object to such statements because they build up false hopes and befuddle our thinking about the real facts. We certainly cannot back such statements with the facts that we have gained from past experience. Such a statement suggests to me that commercial fertilizer should be our main consideration in finding ways and means to furnish future generations with sufficient food. In my vocabulary, this is sheer politics. We start off with a hypothesis wrongly derived from existing data. And because we want to go along with a particular notion, we make assumptions which cannot be proven. This sort of thinking has lulled some of our scientists into a smug complacency, a feeling that we have to be right. I feel that much of our past crop research might best be junked, and that we should start over, with some fundamentally trained, non-political, open-minded personnel, particularly at the administrative levels. This is a harsh statement, but when I'm called a rebel, I like to know why. A friend of mine once told me, don't worry about what people call you as long as you don't rob a bank. You should be glad they talk about you. The time to worry about what they say is when they stop talking. When that happens, they might as well bury you. (laughs) I'm a rebel because I can't go along with the people who say, if you want to increase yields 100%, apply twice as much chemical fertilizer. It has been my experience that nothing is further from the truth. I believe in the use of chemicals to increase the crops grown on an acre of land. But since I have been a member of several agricultural experiment stations during the past 25 years, I can't get enthusiastic about things agricultural colleges are teaching. I am sure that they would have trouble proving 90% of the things that they teach. But they've done a good job of promoting the sale of commercial fertilizer. I have always been of the opinion that unless we can show the farmer by plot comparisons on his own farm that a practice makes him more money, the practice is of questionable value. Over 50% of the chemical fertilizer used on farms today probably does not return the farmer a penny of profit. This does not discredit the chemicals, but it is a criticism of the people who recommend their use. Too many recommendations are based on hearsay, not a knowledge gleaned from treated plots covering a wide area where many variables exist. Such recommendations may produce a profitable increase on one farm and none on the next. In dealing with farmers, I have been surprised to find that Less than 10% follow college recommendations, while 35% follow what the fertilizer salesman recommends. The remainder are guided by past experience. This last group includes most of the successful farmers. This was very disturbing to me since I helped establish recommendations when I had the responsibility to do so. I am convinced that the recommendations for the best use of commercial fertilizers might better be classified as propaganda to sell fertilizer. They do not ensure that the farmer will make more profit from his efforts. I lived on a farm until I went to college. I studied what was offered in a four-year course in agriculture. I was not happy with my choice. I realized I should have gone into chemistry, physics, and mathematics for fundamental training, taking fewer subjects labeled agricultural. I realized that agricultural courses were set up to study the art of growing plants and animals, not the science of agriculture. Agriculture is only the application of science to soils and plants and animals. Why not study the science first and then the art? That way, one could better understand the workings of soil and plants. The application of scientific knowledge to agriculture is of graduate study caliber and should be treated as such. We have too many college graduates conducting fertilizer experiments. It would be more accurate to call them tests. Anyway, they know very little about chemistry. But the application of manures and chemical fertilizers to the soil, their effect on the soil and on the growing crop and their relation to weather conditions, are chemical phenomena which demand understanding of every phase of chemistry. Simple inorganic and organic reactions. physical, biochemical, and complicated organic processes, and complications introduced by fungi, bacteria, soil-inhabiting flora, and insects. The rebel label was attached to me because I could not agree with what my professors had taught me. I proceeded to prove that their interpretations of soil and plant workings were faulty. The object of this book is to present my side of the story of how and why I became a rebel in the fields of agricultural practice and the teaching of college students. I can't agree with common teachings on the use of chemical fertilizer. I have talked with many learned men who have studied in European universities and agree that my interpretations are far more in keeping with chemical law than those of the men who condemn my teachings and I can prove by the use of test plots on farms that a farmer can make more profit with my ideas. V-A-T. Thanks for listening, everyone, to this episode of The Solution. If you'd like to learn more about the Growers Program or anything you heard in this podcast, visit our website at growersmineral.com. Make sure to subscribe so you don't miss another episode. Thanks. We'll see you guys in the next episode.